If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we will be focusing our attention this morning on verses 4 through 7. And last time we were together, we saw Paul's rebuttal against the false teachers who had crept into the church at Philippi. He argued in verse 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in, in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And this morning our text continues this thought, focusing our attention on the Christian's confidence. So here now, the word of our Lord from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Thus far the reading of God's Word, let us ask His blessing upon it. Father God, we come to You and we uh, thank You for this most holy Word, which is a treasured possession unto us. This Word that You have kept pure in all ages and that You promised not one jot or tittle would pass away. This Word of the Lord which stands forever, we thank You for it. So Lord, as we have just read Your Word, we ask Your blessing would be upon that reading. And as we have heard this Word read, we ask that our ears would not be ears of mere passive hearing, but that they would be ears of active listening. That the hearing of the Word among us this day would be a conscionable hearing, a hearing with the heart. And Lord, now as we approach the proclamation and preaching of this Word, we ask that Your blessing would be upon the preaching, that the Word would go forth and would not return void, and that it would be received as the very Word of God. Father, we ask Your blessing would be upon the preacher. That he would diminish so that Christ would be magnified. We ask, Lord, that the preacher's words would not be in the wisdom and the power and the, uh, the cunning uh, words of man but it would be in the demonstration and power of the Spirit who works in your minister to minister the Word unto the people. 
So Lord, we ask that your blessing would be upon this time as we are gathered together to sit at the feet of King Jesus and hear what he has prepared for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, all of us have a problem. And some of us have a more difficult time with this problem than others. But I promise you, every single person on earth has this same problem. We all have indwelling sin remaining in us, in our hearts. And many in the world, they have nothing but sin in their hearts. While those of us who are in Christ, we've had the reign of sin removed and destroyed, but there remains that fallen nature, a remnant of the old sinful man. And that remnant, that remaining indwelling sin in our hearts, it leads us to believe and embrace all sorts of falsehoods. That's what made the false teachers in Philippi so dangerous. Those who were Christians within the church, they might be persuaded by these false teachers and convinced in their sinful hearts to follow the false practices of the Judaizers. And we aren't so very different. It baffles me sometimes how people can get suckered into false teachings and heresies and cults. And then I'm reminded that sin is deceptive and the heart can easily deceive. This is what happens to each and every one of us. We may never, Lord willing, be deceived by such a great false teaching as the Judaizers in Philippi or the Papists or the Federal Visionists of today. But we're all prone at times to be deceived by our own hearts. We're all prone to be deceived into believing falsehoods and to embrace an errant view of the faith. There's a famous quote by John Calvin that says that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. This is so true. How our hearts are so prone to invent and embrace idols of all different sorts. And Paul addresses one of these idols here in our text, the idol of the Judaizers, something which was foundational to their false teaching and something which we are all prone to as well. He addresses the issue of where these false teachers find their confidence and where the Christian is to find his And so the exhortation to you this morning is to let your confidence be found only in Christ. And we'll consider this exhortation 
under three headings. First, vain confidence in pedigree. Next, vain confidence in self-righteousness. And then finally, true confidence in Christ. So let us first consider Paul's teaching regarding vain confidence in pedigree. Look with me in verses uh, in verse four uh, through the beginning of verse five. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul continues his rebuttal of the false teachers here in this text by showing the vanity of their claims. Namely, the necessity of the Old Covenant ceremonial observance for the New Covenant believer. He begins his address against their confidence in the flesh by highlighting that if pedigree were of importance in regards to salvation, in regards to justification, then he would be the most prominent. He was circumcised the eighth day. And the meaning of this is that he was circumcised in the proper manner, according to to the appointment of the law. This customary circumcision on the eighth day was was reckoned by the Jews to be of superior value uh, as well as a token to the race to which they belonged. He was not some foreigner who had received circumcision as a proselyte, either as a young man or uh, in his uh, older ages. No, Paul was a Jew from the very start. And even the earliest moments of his life were wrapped up in his being a Jew. Then he says he was of the stock of Israel. He could trace his lineage all the way back to that great patriarch. Something which would have earned him a lot of respect within the Jewish community. There was no intermingling of blood in his lineage. No one in his family tree had defiled themselves by intermarrying with the Gentiles, something that the Lord in the Old Covenant had forbidden. No, he was pure. He was a full-blooded Jew, if we want to use modern terms. And then he goes on to say that he's of the tribe of Benjamin, of the lineage of that favored son, that last born of Jacob and Rachel. He was of the tribe out of which Israel's first king had come, King Saul. 
And that's very likely where Paul had, had gotten his given name of being Saul of Tarsus. And this is also one of those tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, which had made up the southern kingdom of Judah during the time of the divided kingdom. When the ten tribes of the north uh, had created the, tri- the kingdom of Israel, and then you had Judah and Benjamin and Levi in the south, creating the kingdom of Judah. And this kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, it stayed more faithful unto Jehovah than those of the northern kingdom. Well, at least in appearances it did. Until finally it was uh, brought into captivity as well. And then lastly, he says he is an Hebrew of the Hebrews. There's no one who can claim a more pure pedigree than Paul. Everything about his life and his family and his lineage speaks to the purity of his blood and his fidelity to his race. These Judaizers, they were teaching that in order to become a Christian, in order to be justified, one had to be a Jew uh, before becoming a Christian. And Paul's saying that if being a Jew is what it took in order to be justified in the sight of the Lord, then no one could have even come close to his resume. And yet, he understands that this is vanity. He brings up his own pedigree to show the foolishness of finding one's confidence in such a trivial thing. You may be sitting there thinking that this would be absurd for someone today to do. No one puts their confidence in their pedigree. No one looks at their lineage to determine whether or not they're justified before God. And I would say that if we're talking about, uh, if, if, if we're talking about them doing it explicitly, then you're probably right. I mean, Jews today, modern Jews, they still have this notion of being a Jew is what makes you right before God. But other than that, no one's really explicitly saying, because I have this pedigree, I'm right before God. But what about implicitly? What about internally? Are you tempted to put your confidence in the fact that by God's grace you were raised in a Christian home and you were protected from the rabid wickedness of this world? How easy is it to begin to think that you are better than someone else because you had it easier in life because you were in church while you were growing up while they were out on the streets gangbanging. So many within the church today have this internal reliance upon the fact that they were born into the church and so they're good. 
There's even some groups, and I don't want to go down this rabbit trail. There are some groups that teach a presumptive regeneration. That if you're born into a Christian home, then we just assume that you're a Christian. And we don't even have to preach the gospel to you. How absurd is that? Or perhaps another example. One which may hit closer to home, especially to the children among us or those of us who grew up in Christian homes or in Reformed churches. Are you tempted to think that your baptism puts you in in a special standing? Are you tempted to think that because you were baptized as an infant, like Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, that that somehow puts you in a place of superiority over those of us who came to faith later in life and received believer's baptism? Or are you tempted to think that because you're what's called a blue blood, that you come from a long line of Reformed Presbyterians, that this somehow makes you better? Friends, let it never be so. Children, listen to me. Listen to me carefully. Do not think that just because you have been baptized and raised in a Christian home or even raised in the RP church that you have confidence before God. When you stand before the judgment seat of Jehovah, your pedigree will mean nothing. You must look at those things, recognizing the great blessings that they are. And yes, they are blessings. But you also must recognize that they are but vanity if you have not been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And those things will be used as testimony against you in that last great day as you stand before the judgment seat of God. But it's not only one's pedigree which Paul addresses here in our passage. There's also a vain confidence in self-righteousness. Continue with me in our passage. As touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul brings up the fact that not only does he have as pure a lineage as possible, not only has he been a Jew from birth, not only is he an Hebrew of the Hebrews, but he voluntarily took it a step further and he became a Pharisee. The Pharisees were those who were overcome with a zeal for the law and who sought to obey every one of the 613 laws of the Old Covenant in the strictest way possible. Their study of the Torah 
far exceeded that of the standard everyday Jew. Paul himself, he received a, a spectacular education as he received his instruction uh, from the famed Rabbi Gamaliel. Paul was one of those who would have joined in the rebuke of Christ for healing on the Sabbath day. Or for his disciples gleaning grain on the Sabbath day. And so if these Judaizers were boasting in their keeping of the law, then Paul put them to shame with his. His zeal for the law was unmatched. So much so that he was willing to persecute even the church for her supposed breaking of God's law. This was a man who ordered, supported, and witnessed the systematic execution of those first Christians. Calvin writes, It was indeed a very heinous sin on the part of Paul to persecute the church, but as he had to dispute with unprincipled persons who by mixing up Christ with Moses pretended zeal for the law, he mentions on the other hand, that he was so keen a zealot of the law that on that ground he persecuted the church. He's not bringing this up as though he's proud of it. He's saying, you say you're zealous of the law. I was so zealous that I put to death even God's own people. And this zeal, this pretended zeal was the driving factor in everything that Paul did prior to his conversion. And according to the standards of the Pharisees, as far as law keeping goes, he was blameless. As far as the Pharisees' exposition of the law went, and as to the mere letter of the law and outward observance of it, he could acquit himself from the breach of it and could be accused of any, and could not be accused by any. If anyone kept the law, it was Paul. Charles Simeon writes, His zeal also, though not according to knowledge, was particularly earnest in so much that touching the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. And he opposed the gospel to the uttermost because he thought that it subverted the law of Moses. The righteousness that Paul speaks of here is not the righteousness which is found in Christ, which is imputed unto believers, but it's a false righteousness. It's a self-righteousness, which comes when one divorces the law from the lawgiver. If... Keeping the law was what these Judaizers were advocating for. Then Paul exceeded 
all expectations regarding it. All of this was enough to have made a proud Jew confident and was sufficient to set up with for his justification according to their understanding. And yet, it too was vanity. Paul knows that one's own self-righteousness could never merit anything in itself other than eternal hellfire. He knew what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. He understood the words of Christ in Matthew 5 and verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. He knew self-righteousness was not where he was to find his confidence. So what about you? Are you tempted to put your confidence in your own self-righteousness, in your knowledge of the Word, in your, in your study of doctrine, in your purity of practice? And I'm going to admit to you, this is where my heart is tempted the most. To make these things idols and to place my confidence in them. Yes, we ought to be increasing in the knowledge of the Word. Yes, we ought to love studying doctrines that God has revealed unto us and seek to understand them better. Yes, we ought to be reforming our practice both personally and corporately, seeking to cast off those things which, uh, which are not founded upon the precepts of the Lord and to uphold a purity in practice. But friends, those things will not be what keeps what brings you into the kingdom of God. You can be more knowledgeable than any biblical scholar out there and yet you can find yourself cast into the lake of fire. You can be able to articulate sound reformed doctrine greater than Calvin or Knox or Turretin. And yet still hear the Savior say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You can have the most pure practice seeking to obey the law as strictly as possible. You can have the most pure doctrine undefiled by the teachings and traditions of men. You can have the most pure uh, worship untainted by the innovations and devices of men. And yet you can still find yourself in utter darkness. 
If your confidence before the Lord is found in your self-righteousness, then you are no better than the Pharisees who cried out to see Christ Jesus crucified. There's no hope found in mere observance of the law. It's all but vanity. So where can hope be found? Where may the believer find his confidence? Where can he put his confidence? Well, the Christian can only ever have true confidence in Christ. Look with me at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Those things which the Jews held so dear, those things that, that brought him into a state of prominence in the community, those things which the Judaizers would have been envious to possess, Paul counts them all as loss. This is the power of the gospel. The most precious things of this world become worthless when compared to the everlasting treasure which is found in Christ. He counted them all as loss. Not only insufficient to enrich Him, but he understood that they were those things which would certainly impoverish him and ruin him. Because if he trusted in them in opposition to Christ, then he would have lost everything. He's not telling the saints at Philippi to do anything that he has not already done, namely to forsake everything for the sake of the gospel. The things of this world, the things of man's religion, the things of tradition, one's own pedigree, one's own self-righteousness, it can never be counted as gain because they gain nothing but everlasting death. Those things which Paul once took pride in as marks of his right standing before Jehovah, he now understands were hindrances in his coming to Christ. Those things had to be shed off. They had to be stripped away. His confidence in them had to be removed if he were to have a right relationship with King Jesus. And so on the road to Damascus, Christ Jesus removed that confidence in the flesh from him. The Spirit worked in this man, a Pharisee, a murderer of Christians, and he took out his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. And when the scales fell away from Paul's eyes, he was given the gift of new sight. No longer did he see his pedigree as something to boast in, something which the Lord used to... But he no longer saw his pedigree as something to boast in, but instead he saw it as something which the Lord used to lay the foundation 
for the work that he was going to do in spreading the gospel. No longer did he see his self-righteousness as a means of justification before the Father, but instead he saw them as filthy rags which were defiled and unholy. And so he needed to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No longer did he see Jesus Christ as a blasphemer and a traitor, one who was seeking to draw away faithful Jews into some new fringe false religion. But instead, he viewed Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah spoken of of old, who would deliver his people out of the house of bondage and slavery to sin. But he didn't just view Christ as prophet, priest, and king. He saw him as that very teacher who opened up his eyes. That lamb of God who had taken away his sins. He saw him as that head to whom he himself was vitally united. And from whom he derived all his supplies of graces and strength. Oh, what a glorious transformation the gospel of Jesus Christ has on even the most vile of sinners. No longer did Paul have vain confidence in the flesh, but he now had true confidence in Christ. So let me ask you, where is your confidence found? Is it found in the things of the world and in the possessions that you take so much pride in? Is it found in your heritage and pedigree and your family's name? Is it found in your self-righteousness and your own works, which without Christ are nothing but filthy rags? Or is your confidence found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the only begotten of the Father, God of God and light of lights, the Savior and Redeemer of mankind? If you're here today and your confidence is not in Christ Jesus, then you are in grave danger. The day will come when you will stand before the Father in heaven and you will give an account of your life. Your pedigree will be laughed at when it's brought up as a defense. Your self-righteousness will be mocked when it is appealed to before the throne of judgment. Jesus Christ is the only one with a perfect pedigree because He is the Son of God. He's the only one whose righteousness is worthy of being accepted by the Father because it was a perfect righteousness. And unless you are in Him, unless you have been made a child of God and co-heirs with Christ, unless you have had your filthy rags been stripped off, and you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then you have no hope. You have no confidence. Come unto Christ today. 
Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins and turn unto Christ. Forsake your vain confidence in the flesh and receive a true confidence in Him. Do not let this moment pass you by. And if you're in Him, and yet you find that your idol factory is tempting you, to find your confidence in yourself. Cry out to the Lord to strengthen you. To fight this indwelling sin which seeks to wreak havoc in your heart. He's a gracious Father. And He will provide you through the Spirit who dwells within you everything that you need to find full confidence in Christ. All of us have something which we account as gain. Some of us are more elevated by birth or fortune. Others are uh, more elevated by education and learning. Some value uh, in themselves their, their moral qualities and others their religious attainments. Friends, we must all freely acknowledge the gain that may be found in these things, the good things about them, the blessings that they are. But let us never forget that there is one thing that is infinitely greater than all of those things put together. And without which, everything is accounted as loss. Friends, you must have a deep, true, real, experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. You must be able to say, He has loved me. And He has given Himself for me. And that is more valuable than 10,000 worlds. It is that and that alone which can, have, which can uh, comfort and satisfy and save the soul. So let us then seek to know Christ and Him crucified and to grow in the knowledge of Him till we see Him as we are seen and we know Him as we are known. Do not put your confidence in the things of the world because they will fail you. Do not put your confidence in the things of your own flesh because it is vanity. Brothers and sisters, forsake all and let your confidence be found only in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you
that you have taken our filthy rags and you have cast them aside and you have given us robes of righteousness. Father, we thank you that you have uh, done away with our worldly pedigree, which may mean something in man's eyes, but means nothing in yours. But you have given us a pedigree of pedigrees. You have made us your children and co-heirs with Christ. So Father, let us never uh, forget where our confidence is found. Let us not look to the things of this world, the things of our lives, but let us look solely to King Jesus, the, the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, let us have full confidence Full confidence in you. So Lord, we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.